Evening, everyone. We always got to wait a few minutes for the, the, the crowd to roll in. Well, not a few minutes, but a few moments here. It's going to be a good one tonight. Biomakers, this is going to be good. It's right up my alley. I want to know what's going on out there in the field. So let's let the people are coming in. That's good. We got some good numbers coming in. Awesome. I apologize for last week, everyone. I, I just could not pull it off. I've been traveling too much. And I just couldn't do it, so I apologize for not being on last week. Um, a couple, uh, just one thing I want to say: uh, we're starting to get requests for the not only the audio version that you can easily do on podcast, but people want to see the the video the video version as well. So Rachel's been doing her research, and we're going to start pushing some. Um, I mean, eventually all of them, but she's going to start pushing some up to the cloud as both audio and video so one day we'll be able to then just see because i like to see you know when i hear in the back is great but i like to see the body language and 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 what are people talking about and and their focus and all that so that's just me but anyway all right let's go get giddy up here we go let's go we got a great one tonight biomakers uh i'm gonna start uh i'm gonna start with mary my usual question uh, Mary, what is on your mind right now? That's a good question. Uh, so I am driving right now to uh, back from Nebraska to Colorado, where I am living. And I just met with a big group of agronomists out here. And I'm listening to a book on my way home called uh, The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. Hmm. And it's interesting title, but um, just driving back through the plains and listening to this book that really is about finding your track in life oh. and reconnecting with nature and um, listening to the, the signs that nature gives you. I think that there's a lot of synergy with within agriculture and like our work at Biomakers and what we were talking about today with agronomists and mm -hmm. so it's like this interesting synergy like it's this lion tracker right who's just like really dropped in with the animals and following animals and finding lions in the safari <laughs> but there's all of these synergies around really dropping in and paying attention to the ecosystem and what's going on yeah. and that, that's that's what i'm thinking a lot about right now and uh i think it's really relevant to what we're doing what we do at biomakers and our work within agriculture. So yeah, yeah, that's what's on my mind. Just like the intersections of tuning back in with the natural world and how that is uh, where we're headed in agriculture and the direction to, to keep mm -hmm. growing food. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that weird how, uh, how there's so many parallels in life. So that's, that's awesome. So thank you, Mary. We'll be back to you in a minute. Gus, <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to ask you the same question. You've had a little bit more time to think about it. What's on What's on your mind right now, Gus? Well, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be quite as eloquent or as great of a connection to regenerative ag as Marie, but there is a connection there. Um, on what's been on my mind is uh, my next batch of uh, microbrew beer and kombucha. That And, uh, you know, it's something that I've been experimenting with and kind of a, a little bit of a side hobby that does have some relevance to agriculture, given that some of the same soil, some of the same microbial species, bacteria, fungi, yeasts that we 
look at and measure every day at, at biomakers are some of the same important players in the fermentation process of, you know, of uh, beer, wine, uh, kombucha, all sorts of fermented drinks and and uh, and fruits. And the other thing on my mind is just uh, is gift giving season was coming with the holidays approaching. That's always something that as Thanksgiving gets here, I'm like, it's time to get those holiday lists uh, filled out and, and get yeah. loved ones and gifts. So those those are really two things top of my mind. But after, with the topic Marie brought up a lot more to think about and unravel in our conversation today, probably. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. And and Marie, I'm, I apologize. I, I pronounced your name wrong at the beginning. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, you wouldn't be the first one in my life or today. And for that. Well, <laughs> I apologize. So it'll be Marie the rest of the evening. So yeah. Marie, give us your, give us your background. I mean, how you're not very old. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but I know you're not very old. Um, what what made you know what clicked? What what when did you say okay? I'm going to do what what I'm trying to do today. When did this happen? Well, uh, it happened in 2016. <laughs> um, I'm an engineer by training and had worked in the renewable energy space and oil and gas space, and like oh, wow. always, really had this desire to work in nature some in some way or capacity and we grew up camping and hiking and like looking at things under microscope my dad was my dad was a scientist um science teacher so but it was in 2016 that i was kind of like i really don't want to climb stack towers anymore and measure emissions from the top of refineries uh i want to work in something that is meaningful that connects the work that I want to do out, like just being outside and um, working with ecosystems and the connection to people and humans. And um, I was talking to a friend who was like a climbing buddy at the time in Colorado, Bobby Gill, who, if you follow Savory Institute, know him. Um, and I was like, Bobby, I just don't know what I'm doing. Like, yeah. I, I am working as an environmental consultant, which I thought was like my dream job, but like <laughs> I'm doing air compliance numbers on a spreadsheet. And he was like, do you know what regenerative agriculture is? <laughs> and just kind of like cracked me open to agriculture and really introduced me to like agriculture in general. And he um, just kind of talked to me about the the millions and millions of acres that are managed under agricultural production. And it really clicked for me in that moment that like working in agriculture is at the intersection of science, nature, uh, spirit, like the spiritual connection around like working with the land um, and, and people and communities. And like how every time we sit down with our family and eat, we're connecting to nature and we're connecting to agricultural systems and we're connecting to the people in rural America that are growing our food. And we're connecting to the 900 million acres that raise animals and plants across the United States. Right. Uh, and so that was like the really big like connection for me it was like, this is everything that I'm interested in and, you know, working outside, uh, working with growers is like, just the most salt of the earth amazing people on the planet <laughs> yeah. and so it was like in that moment within the next year I was farming and ranching myself I started working on a goat ranch and 
was just like all in. I was like, I'm going to engineer full time until I figure out how to transition into working in agriculture full time. And I moved onto a farm and just kind of like dove head first, <laughs> figuring out how to wrangle goats and, uh, <laughs> Well, that's great. So farm girl and, and is, is, were you a farm girl then? Not by, not growing up. No, Not growing I just, up, no. it was But when you are I was introduced now. to like agriculture, I was like, oh, I started talking to farmers and I was like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. But, And but, then I was but like, that I need can to be do a this good myself. thing sometimes. That can be a good thing because then you don't have any of the bad habits of, of, of all the other types of farming that, that tend to destroy things. So... Yes. Yes. And you d also don't have like the context of how hard it is to do all of the things that we're talking about. Right. Um, so I think there's like both worlds. And I think that like, that's what I get really excited about bridging is like, it's really the context and the human element of changing things and implementing new practices and how hard that is. And when I started, you know, working on this goat ranch, they were using uh, like antibiotic green and animals weren't rotated and like everybody was just in this tight knit group and they had a lot of deaths every time they had babies. They had a lot of weird defects and like there was some funky stuff going on. And as soon as we transitioned, it was hard to like transition away from that into a fully grass fed system, rotational grazing, yada, yada. It took many years to start seeing the changes and like get the pastures back into a system where we could even do that without hauling in a lot of hay. But the health in the animals was like noticeable in year one. So anyways, I could go down a tangent, but like, um, so yes, it's like great to have this fresh perspective, not growing up on a farm and also having farmed now myself for a few years, also like the, the realness of the hard work that it is. Yeah. Yeah, understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Claudia is on. Claudia is on every night. Uh, thank you, Claudia. Happy Thanksgiving to you also. Uh, how's your back? I think you had some back surgery, if I, if I recall. So hopefully everything's coming along well with that. Uh, Gus, all right, same question. When, uh, when did you know? Well, I, I first of all I would say I probably I followed a pretty similar path as Marie. I think we have, we have a lot of parallels in our experiences and our path towards regenerative ag. I would say it was actually also around the same time, 2016, 2017, that I I kind of was becoming more aware of of how how much I wanted to dive into regenerative ag. I found out I started to really get into it um, during my the first years of my higher education, and I actually. was wanting to go into studying land management and natural resource management. Um, I always kind of was interested in looking at the bigger picture as far as forestry and ecosystem management and not just thinking about them as in terms of, you know, their you know value and but also the ecosystem value they provide and, and some of the unique aspects that go into to forestry and silviculture. But as I started to, to work research jobs in forestry and, and vegetative management, it was very difficult to separate out some of the human-induced impacts. And I, most of my research experience uh, was in uh, Florida. I went to University of Florida for my undergrad. Um, but agriculture was always a big kind of an underlying factor in what we were trying to do as far as uh, land management restoration. There's, I, growing up in Florida, a lot of uh, issues as far as water quality and uh, runoff and algae blooms. And Um, also a challenging environment with sandy soils and um, working, I, I started working for a horticultural sciences lab that kind of got me in the realm of agriculture. And as I learned about 
the idea of applying some of the um, some of the, the concepts we learn in forestry and, and ecosystem management to agriculture, it really clicked with me. And I, I think that a, a big part of it was also starting to get involved in the agricultural community. And in Gainesville, Florida, there's a lot of small farms and a lot of you know uh, community-supported agriculture, CSAs and farmers markets, and a lot of folks trying to do things regeneratively, but on a smaller scale. And that was when I, I really went uh, around the the second year of my undergrad started to gravitate towards the idea of, of you know, regenerative systems and, and cover crops and no-till and such. And also I did have uh, my family, actually, my parents grew up in Wisconsin. My dad grew up doing farm labor and saying my, my grandparents were both uh, farmers. So I had a little bit of that background. And But what mm -hmm. I got out of it growing up, my dad, he hated the farm labor he did growing up and, and wanted to get out of it. So pursued a job outside the field of agriculture. And he likes to joke, well, I worked hard so that you could get out of agriculture. And then you went ahead and hopped <laughs> back in. Um, but I kind of come from a not so much a, a hard ag background, more of an ecological or, or ecosystem focused lens. And um, it's been really exciting. And just the, the I went on to get my master's at University of Texas in an agroecology program. Um, that was a unique opportunity because it was, was one of the few programs I could even find that offered a, a, a it didn't just focus on hard agronomy, but focused on systems thinking and um, some of the, the, the both the human and the agricultural era and the environmental dimensions of, of agriculture. And then the other thing that that really pulled me in was the the human health dimension, both human health and human sociology, which um, right. have you know learning about some of the some of the the facts around declines in nutritional quality and also some of the uh, some of the incredible improvements I've even seen myself working in uh, research on organic cropping systems, some of the higher BRICS levels and quality that can be achieved when the, the soil is healthy and um, and crops aren't being you know reliant on on chemical fertilizers and, and crop protection products. So that's kind of the you know the the direction that pulled me full circle from uh, from environmental management more into regenerative ag. Yeah, well that's awesome. I love those stories. Thank you. Well, let's, um, you know, I want to hear perspectives from both, but let's, let's talk about biomakers now. That's what we're all, we're all here to real, you know, I want to hear, I want to hear what, what you've got going on and I don't care who starts, uh, tell us what your role is at biomakers and what, what's biomakers doing, doing for the regenerative, the regenerative movement. Rick, before we jump into biomakers, can we hear a little bit from you, like what's on your mind tonight and uh, how how you got to where you are? You want to flip the table? Okay. All right. We can do that, Marie. All Just right. A little bit before we jump into biomakers. That's yeah. Um, okay. I want to tell you, um, you know, the thing that, that really got me aware of this was erosion. So I started looking at regenerative practices of course i didn't know what they were called then but we started looking at those practices as a defensive mechanism to stop or slow down erosion whether it be wind or water okay and then as we get into this and we realize the power that these cover crops have if you let them do what they were intended to do and what i mean by that is if if you've got a cereal grain and you want it to to grow and create biomass and then have the ability to roll down to, for mechanical termination, you've got to let it grow to maturity. You can't come in and spray it when it's this tall with, with Roundup on the first warm day of spring. 
So once we realized that, then I realized, Marie, that, that cover crops were an offensive juggernaut and that we can now start to pull away these inputs. And that's, and that's exactly what we did. I mean, this, we took a systematic approach to it. You know, I started with 200 acres and I took the recommendation of the agronomist and, and I said, okay, great. I'm now gonna take that recommendation on this 200 acres. We're gonna cut it in half. And then we're gonna see what happens. Well, that then showed that we could either maintain yield, if not increase yield with 50% of the inputs. Then, you know, then it's like, whoa, wait a minute you know, is this really possible? And then you do it again, and then you bring in another 200 acres, you do it again, and then you're like, we're going all the way. And, and, and we're not reckless. I mean, we still do, we do Haney testing. I still love Rick's test. I think it's one of the best tests out there. And um, we, uh, we then decided that, um, you know, there's way more important things here than, than, than chasing yield. So we need to chase uh, return on our investment and we need to chase human health. And so then my wife and I were, were talking about, Carol wanted me to go organic way longer than I did. I just couldn't figure out a way to do it that, that wouldn't jeopardize the farm. But uh, once you sit down, Marie, and you start to look, uh, at least for us, and, and this is all about context, but uh, you look at our family and you think, you know, you know, an uncle died of cancer. My wife had cancer. My nephew had cancer. Uh, an aunt had cancer. Uh, there's diabetes. I mean, and then it's just like, whoa, wait a minute here. What's going on? So then, then you say to yourself, you know, I don't, I don't want our kids to be around this stuff. And I don't want our grandchildren to be around this stuff. So we're going to now go regenerative organic and just see how far we can take it. So that was kind of a quickie, quickie uh, journey there, Marie, but that's, that's the gist of it. It's awesome. It's nice to hear context before we dive into like what Biomakers does, because we can tie it all back. And um, so thanks. Thanks for yeah. sharing. You're welcome. So you just start us off. What's, what's Marie's capacity and what's Biomakers up to? So... Uh, yeah, at Biomakers, uh, I am an account manager or business development manager. We wear a lot of hats in young companies like this. Uh, but what I do primarily is help our growers, agronomists, retail partners, ag input companies understand where our technology is best fit. Because like you mentioned before we, you know, dove into this conversation, our technology at Biomakers, we do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But the basis of our technology is uh, extracting DNA from the soil biology, creating functional reports that can help growers, agronomists, retailers, input manufacturers understand what's going on in the soil in order to inform decisions. And so you mentioned the Haney test, right? Uh, any fertility management decisions are made on farm by a fertility analysis. And so what we're saying is biological decisions on farm should be made with a biological analysis. And exactly. so, yep. And so that's, that's what, you know, in, in a very small nutshell, what Biomakers is doing is providing yeah. the biological analysis and a functional assessment, something that's really easy to understand and digest for the industry uh, to make decisions with around biology. 
Yeah, I'm going to tell you. Well, I'm going to tell you my story about biomakers after guests go. So um, remind me, Marie, because my, my I'm already thinking about four questions, four more questions. So remind me to come back to this. Okay, guests, tell us what your capacity is at biomakers and and what how do you see uh, biomakers moving you know moving further into this regenerative space. Sure. So I'm I'm a technical agronomist with biomakers. Uh, like Marie said, we have pretty loose titles at a at a tech startup, but typically that's what I go by an agronomist. So my role is mainly focused on interpreting our soil biology tests, helping educate our clients on how to leverage and use these tests for agronomic insights and management decisions, and also helping just with uh, field technical questions on what sort of um, you know agronomic questions we can and can't answer, how we can go about designing sampling projects to answer them, setting up trials and such. Um, so that's mainly my role is really as a classical agronomist, but uh, given my background more on the biological and agroecology side, I'm, on, I'm mainly you know focused on interpreting our soil biology tests alongside some of the Haney tests and others that, uh, that uh, we offer within our lab uh, network. And as far as the second part of your question, biomakers moving forward, that I could probably spend the next 45 minutes just talking about that yeah. alone, but oh, yeah. I think... I think uh, Marie would agree that really one of the most exciting parts of our work and, and really moving forward, I mean, regenerative ag, even in my short career, we've seen so much momentum take off in the last five to 10 years. And uh, what's what's really exciting is just being able to, we're really just starting to scratch the surface of what we can do with some of this data. And, you know, a lot of the, I always think back to kind of the, the route that chemical fertility uh, followed, you know, a lot of the chemical fertility tests still commonly used in the U.S. today have been around, you know, 50, 40 plus years. And right. uh, we have a lot of data backing them up. We have these calibration curves and, you know, these these uh, yield calibrations that have been done to hone in on a regional basis, you know, the levels of PEK, mi micronutrients, and in some cases, nitrogen that are recommended. But with biologicals, with biostimulants, biologicals, you know, and, and cover crops and such, um, soil health focus management practices, we don't really have that breadth of data backing up how we make decisions um, that we really haven't had the technology to measure it until tests like like Rick's, you know, Rick H the Haney test came along. And now genomics in the last, you know, five, 10 years is finally getting cheap enough and scalable enough to, to, to apply the same kind of way that we apply, you know, 23andMe and looking at the human genome, we, uh, uh, genome, we can now look at that that microbial life uh, by extracting the DNA in the soil. And really the exciting thing is taking that analytics and kind of like we've developed yield curves for chemical fertility measurements. We now also have AI and machine learning, which is part of our process for making these functional measurements in the soil that Marie mentioned, being able to quantify microbes, but also essentially sort them into functional groups of, of based on what they do relevant to crop production. And what we're really excited is that we're already kind of getting started on this. I can't go into too much detail, but um, some of the preliminary projects we're working on and have on the horizon involve prescribing and using our, using our data to prescribe biological solutions based on the, the microbial tests. So Taking, yeah, and then what's really exciting is I, before joining Biomakers, I worked in the biological product space. And while, you know, the, the big thing you run into is the snake oil moniker, you know, biological might work great two or three times, but then it, you know, doesn't get a yield bump with a grower or doesn't yeah. show a response and suddenly they've lost faith. But the problem is just like you wouldn't use the same fertilizer or even the same fertilizer form type or application rate everywhere, you, you know, you wouldn't even use the same lime everywhere, depending on 
certain factors and, and your soil chemical fertility tests. With biologicals and cover crops, it's the same way, the same, the same solution, the same biostimulants, cover crop mix, it's just not going to work as a silver bullet everywhere. So getting the data behind those decisions and being able to use our the, the, the largest soil biology database in the world and uh, leverage that to prescribe and, and make some of these decisions yeah. with the, the data behind it, that's really the exciting direction that I, I we're, that we're going at Biomakers. Yeah, and see, this is I've been talking about this for a couple of years, and you're going to be able to figure out, you know, okay, this farm in, in, in central Illinois has got a water hemp problem, okay? And you're going to figure out what bi biological uh, presence needs to either be there or, or disrupt something that's there that creates the environment for that water hemp to want to germinate in. Because it's only going to germinate if it knows it can grow and survive and do everything has only one purpose in this on this planet one purpose is to procreate that's what everything's purpose is and if that if that environment is not in that right position that water hemp seed won't do anything this year it'll wait till next year so once you guys figure out those triggers this is going to be game over i think and then you come then you combine that with a cover crop package of certain species of exudates i think it's it's i think we now can manage a a system with absolutely zero inputs and be success. I mean, totally successful. What do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree on a few things. What I'll add is that what, so there's like, it's really exciting about where we're headed, but what we can do today is also really cool. And I, so that's kind of what I was, I was thinking about touching on is that so this, this water hemp thing that you're talking about, right? We could we yeah. could talk about water hemp and weeds. We could talk about disease pressure. We could talk about uh, nutrient uptake. We could we could talk about all of these issues on farm sure. that really impact ROI, right? That you were talking sure. about that impact ROI on farm. And so the future where we're, we're headed is like, yeah, wanting to like get really nitty gritty on what exactly, you know, what product might be the best use. But what we can do today is really cool in identifying when you compare, let's say you have one field that is ridden with water hemp every year and you have another field that water hemp never grows. You know, the seeds there, right? Like the fields yeah. are right next to each other. And yeah. I saw this in our pasture all the time. There'd be one patch where there would be like toad flax like crazy. And then another patch that would just look beautiful. And so what we can do today is take samples in both of those locations and look at the difference and identify some of the key root causes for right. differences in disease, differences in yield, differences in weed pressure, and help growers identify some of those root cause issues when you compare fields side by side, and then inform, you know, that that's what can inform either the grower or the agronomist to say, okay, so the difference between these, these two fields is magnesium mobilization and abiotic stress tolerance. Well, what can we do then to address those root causes to mitigate that issue? And weeds yeah. is a really great example. If if any any of your followers follow Nicole Masters' work, she talks about reading your weeds and that every weed does have a purpose and what is it doing there. And so we can drill down into what is the purpose of that weed there and how can we how can we remove its purpose? Right. <laughs> right? right. Without without net a product or without like a necessarily an input but like how can we understand why it's there and mitigate the issue yeah so see i think 
this is fascinating because you're right. I was, I mean, I've been talking about this for two or three years, but it's here now. It's, it's here today. You guys are doing it. So I want to tell you my little quick, what I came up with one day. Um, I, well, I came up, I came up with a couple of things. We're going to talk about one of them in a little bit, but this is different than what you guys haven't heard this. Um, I wanted to know, I wanted to know what, what was the inherent biology in certain locations on our farm. So I went to areas on the farm that had not been touched or, or damaged by, by humans yet. So a, a wood somewhere that's always been a woods, a waterway or, or a piece of a, a corner of a field that, that is a grass and has always been a grass for as long as my dad can remember. We went to those spots and pulled samples and took an essay, a, a biological essay of those samples, and then went out to those neighboring fields and took another biological essay, compared the two, and then said, okay, what are we lack? What are we missing here between the field and the inherent? And then there's people out there that can grow the biology that we need, and we filled those holes in. So now we have fields that have inherent biology in them, based on what your study told us from those inherent samples. To me, that is huge. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. It gets down to like working with nature, right? Like there's so much, I, I hear people talk a lot about, um, you know, there's a lot of hunters in agriculture. Mm -hmm. You go and you're out in the field and you're hunting and like all of these things are growing and it's like, what, did you have to fertilize any of that stuff? <laughs> no. um, and yeah, yeah so it, and so the biology is really doing a lot for us that we just haven't had a way of measuring and we have a we have a culture of like needing the data and needing the science. And, and so yeah. that, that's what I get excited about. That's what we can provide now is like, we can show you what, what is there and what's not there. And then you can, you know, yeah. see with the data. <laughs> so, okay. I've always wondered, I know there's, I, I'm assuming there is a, a collection point somewhere. That's the, the main, the main brain of this thing. And, if someone identifies a, a species, then I assume it's being registered registered somewhere, and then you can pull from this database and update your 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 algorithm that's looking for this biology. Um, I'm assuming that's happening, right? That yeah, that's that's a pretty pretty accurate portrayal of it. Yeah, we're compiling a database, a taxonomic database of the names of those species and their their gene sequences, specifically yep. the gene sequences that we refer to as biomarkers, which allow us to identify them, you know, well agreed upon sections of DNA that can tell us code essentially barcode or code for the species. What's really cool on that topic, Rick, with some of our metrics, we've so like you like you just described, we're compiling these lists of microbes that we pick up in samples. And our what our data science team has done is because they've they have this giant expanse of samples, they can even look. We've looked at which microbes get to get you seem to get along well because they have high levels of co-occurrence. They seem to synergize, cooperate, form essentially little communities, you know, symbiotic communities just you know, microbes don't just exist in isolation. They just same way they interact with the crop root, they interact with each other. Um, in a, in, yeah, yeah, same as humans. And kind of in some ways, it's similar to like an like a like a food web, you know, the connections of predator and prey, different trophic levels. 
But what's so what's cool is with this compilation of this database, we can see which microbes get along well, and then which ones don't get along well, which ones show levels of competition, co-exclusion, where they they don't they either you know fit the same niche and they they don't get along because of that, or or maybe they're they're natural, you know, predator and prey. Um, so what we're what we've done is we do have one metric that's a soil quality score that you may recall from your samples. And that's based on partially that factor, the, the symbiosis or how well these microbes interact ecologically. And we've seen in regenerative soils, we actually, our data science team published a paper um, looking at uh, vineyards that were managed regeneratively uh, or with biodynamic practices as they refer to it in Europe, because this was an international study, then, then organic or sort of transitional farms that may use some combination of more regenerative and more uh, conventional practices, and then they sampled a, a lot of conventional, you know, intensively managed farms. And of course, as you would expect, we saw that the cooperation and synergy increased as you had more regenerative practices integrated into, into the programs for those vineyards. Um, so that's one of the beautiful aspects of compiling this database is the data as a whole is much stronger than individual, you know, this, than the the individual parts that make up that database, um, and that's part of what goes into being able to predict and and use AI to to drive uh, predictions is looking not only at the levels of microbes but also their functions and how they how they interact. Yeah, yeah, this is awesome, folks. If you've got a question, I mean, now's the time. We've got we got two great great folks, young folks here, work for biomakers. I mean, this. This is the future right here, what we're talking about. It's here now, and it's only going to get better. All right, so you guys want to talk about the, the study that, that, that I, the idea that I came up with, and okay, let's go there. Let me, let me, let me set it all up. Um, I was talking one day to my good friend, John Kempf, and I, 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 I love John. He's, he's, uh, he's really smart, and I just love the way he looks at things. And John and, and I were talking about um, foxtail because foxtail is an issue that we have on our farm right now. I think it's a lot to do with progression, but I, I, there's other things at play here too. So we'll go there, that's fine. And John's concern was, well, Rick, wonder, I wonder since you're no-till and you're, you've not applied any, any, any uh, synthetic fertilizers, any inputs of any kind for the most part, I wonder if maybe your, your soils are becoming stratified. And I'm like, well, that could be because maybe we've got a concentration of calcium, you know, at the wrong, at the wrong spot in the profile, and that's, that's helping contribute to the foxtail. So I then came up with the idea to let's go out. I had uh, my, another good friend of mine, Mitchell Hora, and his company, Continue Mag, they, came, they were coming through the neighborhood, so I had them come. They pull soil samples for me every year, and we do the Haney test. And I said, guys, I want to do something different here. I want to pull a, 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 I want to pull a core on every inch increment. So however many cores you have to pull of just the first inch, I think, I think um, uh, they took 20 of the probes, you know, and they took just the one inch out of each top of the probe. It took 20 of them to get a sample. Then they took 20 to two inch, 20 to three, 20 to four, and so on and so on. And we did a, an inch increment from one or from, yeah, one through six. And then they took soil samples of, of just a standard soil sample, one to six, and then six to 12. And then I wanted a Haney test ran and I wanted a biomakers test ran. 
And now that gets us up to where we are. So, uh, Gus, do you have, uh, you've got control of the, of the screen if you want to share some slides. Uh, I think I've set this up good enough. So now what we're going to see is, and by the way, I need to, Marie, I need to know what B crop means. So now's a good time to explain that. Would you tell us? Yeah, so the, we're, the company is Biomakers, right? And we can talk about that name too, but B crop in specific, the idea behind B crop and the, the, the feeling behind it is that we, you know, <laughs> we want to understand what it's like to be the crop in the soil. Oh. So it's like, cool. yeah, like on a biological level, like the, you know, a major part of soil biology is the inter interaction that it has with the root exudates and the relationship that it has with the plant. And that's like the synergy that we we need to understand. So that's where B crop came from. So we're B crop samples, B crop tests. We're we're understanding what it is to be like the crop in the soil. <laughs> and that that that's talking to us. I get it. I love it. That's great. Yeah. All right. All right, Gus. Uh, here, let's see what uh, Mark. Hey, Mark, how you doing this evening? Um, how does biodynamic organic compare to, oh, wait a minute, I lost it. Where's that? Where's my chat go? Okay, here we go. How does biodynamic organic compare to, um, no-till region organic system, which is higher in nutrient density output or other differences? You got any, any experience with that? Or I mean, you got enough information to give an answer on that? Yeah, I can take a shot. And if anybody else has more context, you can. Um, so I don't, Mark, I don't know where you're from, but in the United States, biodynamic is actually a certification and it involves uh, some other, some celestial, okay, in Wisconsin, some celestial practices around like planting with the calendar. Um, it also, but I think at a high level, I think the practices are probably similar, like regenerative organic and biodynamic. They're two different certification bodies. Um, one has been, you know, biodynamic has been around for a long time. Uh, it's, I, I think, like, so that, I mean, I think they're probably pretty similar in terms of, like, practices and modalities. They just might have different... Uh, different roots or methodol like methodologies behind them potentially, yeah. but I think the practices but, are probably but Marie, do you guys, can you guys do nutrient density testing? I mean, if someone sent you some, uh, a, a, a quart bag of some corn seed, could you do a new nutrient density test? We don't at biomakers. No, because okay. we're just like biology, not, um, okay. not the like chemical makeup or constituents. Hey, hey Mark, that's a great question. Um, and we'll have to find the answer to that because that's kind of intriguing, really. Um, and I, 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 I think I know where you're going with that. But, uh, yeah, we need, yeah, curious about the tiller. Yeah, that's why I figured you were going on this. Yeah. Um, and I, I would be interested to see that. But I'm going to, I'll tell you, Mark, let's hang on here just a minute. And let's let these guys dive into my results. And I think it, this might kind of answer your question here. Go ahead, Gus. Great are question. You, are you able to see this the slides yeah. up on your screen? Okay, great. Great. So this is just really quick overview, and uh, we have a few slides that I, I at the end, just in case we have more time to to elaborate on the details. But we're really there's a lot of depth in our samples, so we're going to kind of stick to the take home message, which was focused on compaction. So here was 
that sampling design that Rick mentioned. So these were each of these was a composite sample taken at, at the one inch uh, increments, and then uh, one sample composited uh, composite samples taken across zero to six and six to twelve. Um, with the real main focus of seeing if there's you know a compaction curve or any changes, one of the the interesting things with compaction is there's microbial functions that we look at that are directly related to it. And I I have this slide here. I know it's a little wordy, but and this is probably sort of a refresher or or already very familiar concept to I I think a lot of your audience, Rick. So I'll try to be quick. Yeah. But with compaction, when we when we think about it, the big concern um, that that can influence biology is oxygen and, and air permeability. With compacted soil, we're going to have a, a lower portion that can be uh, dedicated to that air pore space. And when significant compaction occurs, this can cause the populations of microbes that rely on what we call aerobic respiration, essentially the same sort of breathing we do, oxygen-dependent breathing, taking in, taking in oxygen, breathing out CO2. And those microbes can decline due to compaction when there's not a lot of oxygen available for them to breathe. Some microbes may also switch to other metabolic processes if they can um, when there's not enough oxygen. So th those some of those other metabolic processes, which we, we look at aerobic respiration on our B-crop test, but we also look at um, fermentation and methanogenesis. And those are some of those alternative metabolic processes that, micro that may increase when there's less oxygen available. Um, these metabolic processes not requiring oxygen tend to we tend to see jumps in these these uh, these functions when when there's compaction and we've seen time we've seen similar concerns play out Rick where folks send in samples usually it's not every inch I think this is maybe the first time we've seen that uh, but usually it's every three inches or every six inches maybe down to eighteen or so and sometimes we do see vast differences the aerobic respiration declining. Uh, you know, at depth and fermentation and methanogenesis off the charts um, due to those anaerobic zones. So uh, the other important thing to keep in mind is this last bullet point that generally speaking, and this is very general, but what a lot of soil health experts and especially compost experts will tell you is that aerobic microbes are generally more favorable to soil health processes than anaerobic microbes, which can include some of your pathogens. But I I, I don't like to make generalizations because I know a lot of those anaerobic microbes are beneficial as well. It's just from a from a general standpoint, the reason that uh, you know compost producers focus on aerating their compost effectively and ensuring a good balance of moisture and air is so that they can harbor those aerobic populations, which help with nutrient cycling and other beneficial functions we look at. So just with these, these factors around compaction in mind, this is why we looked at some of those carbon-focused metabolic processes that involve the, the flux of carbon in the soil. And this also does relate to building soil carbon. But what we see here on the right is this is one of our, our uh, analytical tools, which is available on our um, on our website for any client. Um, and what we this is what we refer to as our heat map tool. It's not necessarily a, a geographical map, but more of just a, a chloroplex uh, style display um, list ranking um, the uh, levels of microbes in each of these functional groups represented by the columns. So each column represents a different carbon-related microbial function. So we're, we're taking you know, the microbes detected in a sample and essentially sorting them by the functions they perform relevance to carbon. You know, Carbon fixation, if it, I wasn't really surprised to see that in, in the medium to high range in Rick's samples because those are a lot of your beneficial microbes that can help directly sequester carbon. Um, and in you know, no-till cover crop fields, we expect to see pretty good numbers. And yeah, oh, one thing I should mention, 
these the uh, schematic rating these samples from very low represented by the bright yellow to very high in the dark blue that represents how these how these microbial functional groups compare to our database of soil samples so that's kind of like a standard soil fertility test we've developed a database and a standard standard rating system for these these functional groups and generally speaking with uh, certain functions we want them to be higher and others you know generally lower but with nutrient cycling generally most of them we prefer higher when we look at aerobic respiration here again this is the one that tends in in healthy soils with with uh, optimal oxygen permeability and, and um, solid soil aggregation and structure aerobic respiration tends to be pretty good like we see here and that's uh, and this I should also make a connection to the Haney test here the same way the Haney test that well the Haney test measures respiration but in a different way they measure it of course with a, a co2 burst test looking at the amount of co2 emitted by those aerobic microbes uh, over time we're measuring it based on the DNA present in the soil so the Haney test you know our our results were really taking different lenses and that's just one area where we we overlap with the Haney test. Generally, we we don't, but we we look at that same sort of concept of resp uh, microbes that can perform respiration. And in samples taken from compacted fields, we've we've seen this time and time again. We typically see maybe aerobic respiration is medium to high in the first inch or so, but then it really tends to drop off. In Rick's samples we saw the exact same, we, the exact opposite, where we, we saw high respiration down low into the soil profile as uh, shown by the, the dark blue wow. squares here. What was the six to 12? And then that was, yeah, so that, uh, that was um, a little bit uh, down there. We saw uh, all the way, so we didn't actually include all the data just to make it a little bit, um, a little bit more succinct, but uh, I think in the six to 12, we had seen similar numbers as far as aerobic respiration, not not off the board. But, but you see, Gus, that this, okay, folks, to me, this verifies, I mean, you. I've always said you've got to look for validations that what you're doing is correct. So I can go out with a spade and I can see aggregate stability 10 to 12 inches deep now on this farm. This right here proves it, right, Gus? Exactly. And just like with the aerobic respiration, that was enough proof in the pudding, really. We wouldn't, if there wasn't much oxygen getting down there, we really, these microbes wouldn't be able to live at the, the levels that would be within the, the high ranges of our database. Then fermentation and methanogenesis, which we would expect to increase with depth in compacted soils, um, showed really, you know, not generally completely different trends. Fermentation actually went down, which is the opposite we would expect. Methanogenesis went up and down a little bit, was a little bit higher at three to four inches, but generally showed just, you know, consistent trends. Um, so this really is the proof in the pudding, you know, that the DNA doesn't lie. And we know, you know, looking at these levels of microbes and well-established relationships with oxygen and, and soil permeability, um, I, I was glad to hear, uh, Rick, you, you mentioned when we first uh, visited this data, that uh, looking at a tensiometer or a measurement of your, your soil structure, you're really seeing very solid, you know, spongy texture and, and not really experiencing any compaction just as far as your physical measurements. So no. I'm glad to see the biological data really, you know, align with that. See, to me, this is this is huge, folks. This is another way. And and Gus, I mean, just a real quick answer, because I mean, there's we got questions piling up here, but um, are we going to be able to do this at, at the field level in a 15? I mean, can we do this with a DNA sequencer one day? Can we can we get to these kind of answers in, in a few minutes rather than several days? 
So there's always, you know, a, a technological curve when it comes to this. And what I've been really excited about, I've been at a biomakers almost two years now. And there's, you know, when it comes to the sample analysis, it's not is with with DNA sequencing, it's not as cut and dry as extracting uh, chemical, you know, nutrients from a soil sample or or um, using you know using an extraction method to measure pH. We have a, a the sequencing method um, that's that actually characterizes the the biomarkers that we detect in the sample. You know, the microbial DNA that can indicate what species are there. That alone takes about three days. The sequencer needs to run for roughly seventy two hours, even a little longer. Um, and then on top of that, we also have a quality control process that can generally our turnaround time, Rick, and I don't know actually what it was when these samples were taken, but oh. generally it takes about two to three weeks currently. And it can take longer in the cases of um, when we have quality control issues, meaning that when, when our lab team goes to extract the DNA and sequence it, if they don't get enough fungal or bacterial DNA, they'll actually rerun your sample. And that can, you know, send it, that can add on a few days to, to weeks, depending on, um, on the process of how much DNA is there. I, in, in, you know, just my short career, this technology is really sped up and continues to, in the time I've been at Biomakers, our turnaround time has actually gone down by, by several weeks on average. Our lab team has really done an incredible job optimizing the processes. And there's starting to be some sequencing equipment that is actually um, smaller and, and more uh, scalable to field yeah. settings. Um, also equipment to help with the extra just the extraction of the DNA, because once that DNA can be extracted and is stable, um, it's a lot easier to get it you know, to a lab to process and can, make, can take care of some yeah. turnaround time issues. So we're moving in that direction, Rick, for sure, of, of making this more, you know, more, uh, more accessible and, and uh, it's, you know, gonna, it's gonna scale up with time, but uh, I'm just, just, uh, you know, just a couple of years ago is, you know, the, the general science behind it was not as optimized for large, you know, large scale, uh, high, high throughput sampling, and it's, it's only getting better with time. Right. So right now, Gus, is the biome, the B, the B test, is it uh, fungal and bacterial? Is that the two? There's there's no protozoa or no or no nematodes. Is that correct? No nematodes. That requires a different biomarker than our our processes are mainly focused on fungi and bacteria. Really, the the sort of foundation of that food web in the soil. But we can actually detect some protists, um, certain species that are related, you know, relatives of of uh, fungi like Pythium, Phytophthora, um, as well as uh, Archaea. We can detect pretty easily because they share the biomarker with bacteria. So. Yeah, mainly okay. bacteria and fungi, but a few other microbes as well. All right, let me let me just hold because I I got to see where we are on questions here because I'm sure there's a que questions that are pertaining to what we're talking about. Uh, Ed Bourgeois on Ed, how you doing? He's on every time. He's one of our great fans. Uh, because of the recent rhizophagy cycle research, can biomakers test the bacteria around the roots and then test in the plant? And most important, what ends up in the seed? Very good question. I've I've been really excited by a lot of the research by uh, you know um, experts like Dr. James White in the rhizophagy space, um, Dr. Mary Lucero. There's so much interesting as aspect in looking at those bacteria and fungi that can live in the in the crop, and we've we're, that's something we're we're considering. I've I've been. A little bit. One thing that's really exciting, and it does take time to, you know, the functional database that we look at. We, we, there's a lot of research in the back end that goes into ensuring our data is robust, and our data science team. It, it, we're not going to rush anything that's, uh, you know, looking into anything that's 
uh, not well proved out. But there are there's starting to be more research on the genes that microbes possess, which help them uh, help them integrate into the rhizophagy cycle. Uh, you know, factors that allow certain bacteria to uh, dissolve, essentially dissolve into uh, the root once it's absorbed. And similar with fungi, the problem is it takes time. We, our data science team uh, builds our database based on peer-reviewed research that's been well established and verified. The rhizophagy cycles really come into focus in the last few years. And as more research comes out on those genes that microbes use that, that are involved in both the plant and the microbe side to be absorbed into the crop, I'm hoping that there's some aspects we can start to we can start to tie in. What's really interesting, we already look at on our tests microbes that are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium consumers. And we know now through Dr. White and other researchers, microbes can essentially compile these nutrients, assimilate it into their biomass, and then potentially share it with the crop once it's absorbed. So we already have some metrics that relate to the rhizophagy cycle in terms of microbial assimilation of these nutrients. But I'm excited to see where the, the route goes as more, more research comes to light. And we we don't offer it as a service. We occasionally do some testing on the microbiome as, as kind of an ad hoc service, testing seeds or plant tissues for their, their the soil, the microbes present. Um, and there's I, I think that's a, an area where we're seeing increased demand due to, to interest, not only in the microbiome of the soil, but the phylosphere, the plant, the plant tissue microbiome. Yeah. Now, Marie, I got a question for you, but just before I get there, I want to I want to go back to Mark's qu uh, question earlier. Mark, I think this is telling us that tillage is not a good thing. That's how I'm looking at it. I mean, look at the organic matter release. It just increases all the way down through the profile because we're not disrupting any of this soil anymore. I I look at this as a, a an extreme check mark of oh yeah what we're doing is working and marie how would you if you were you know you had your group of agronomists today and if you were to show them this what you know what would you tell them and what's their reaction do you mean to just like tillage and its impact on compaction in general no this just what this this chart this this what gus has just gone through how would you how would you view this and how would you talk to this to your group of agronomists? Well, uh, I mean, in this case, you have a lot of really amazing stuff going on. But usually when we're working with the agronomists, we're identifying the problems. <laughs> so in this case, I'd be like, hey, you're doing something really great. And maybe you should just keep doing that. And it's working and it's going deep. And, um, you know, because obviously we're looking at a lot of blue here and you've got great carbon cycling and you've got carbon fixation that goes really deeply and like there's a lot of good stuff happening yeah. so when we're working when i'm working with agronomists anyways usually there's a lot of yellow on reports and we're trying to help them figure out like how do we okay. address low indexes in a way that is going to increase roi for the grower uh improve environmental ecosystem function overall and like benefit everybody in the system see so. now what i think you guys ought to do i've got i've always got ideas here <laughs> i think okay there's a lot of folks out there that farm in many different ways okay you've got some people that that just want to do vertical tillage and just work in that top two inches okay compare though what would their chart here because they're 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 working the top two inches, so I'm assuming the top zero to one, one to two, and maybe the two to three would have a lot more yellow than than my boxes do here. 
And then what about the people who are going deeper and doing, let's say, green manuring and actually, you know, turning over biology into the soil? I mean, I think it'd be great to see, and maybe you guys have already done this, is co to compare what happens to these characteristics through the different um, uh, farming systems, which I think is where Mark was ultimately trying to get to with his question. Yeah, absolutely. We've definitely looked at management practices, like different functionality across management practices, and there's certainly a difference, right? Um, and this all comes from just conversations that we have with growers and agronomists. It's just like you said earlier, it really has a lot to do with context. So understanding the context of that yeah. operation, that region, what's going on in that field in specific anecdotally, we can say that there are often trends in a lot of these functions based on management practices. Yeah. And um, we're, you know, working with some larger research groups that are putting together really big studies across the entire United States of looking at management practices as it relates to biological functionality. And it, there are, there are very strong trends there, right? Like if you have higher nutrient cycling, um, there's something that you're doing to create that in the ecosystem by working with nature. Um, yeah. We, we see that all the time. There are definitely strong trends in this, these functionality indexes as it relates to like soil health practices in general. Right. If there's One thing on Mark's question that I think is, is key to hit on Rick, we've, you're not the first person who's pulled samples at multiple depths and had concerns about compaction and it's usually no-till growers and we've had where they do have hot, you know, high fermentation and methanogenesis and their aerobic respiration goes, goes to, you know, to zero as, as you go down. So yeah. that sounds, and a lot of times it's guys who have been long-term no-till and are considering vertical tillage or something as a tool. So unfortunately, compaction, uh, some folks may not have, you know, have as, be, be as fortunate to see such great results and outcomes with some of their no-till cover crop systems um, where, you know, some degree of, of loosening that soil may help in the long run. Um, of course, overdoing it, we see, we also see plenty of samples from growers who do use intensive tillage where um, things are even more yellow, especially in other functions like nutrient cycling. So uh, Marie really hit an important point that the context is super, super key. Sometimes folks uh, tests don't look, you know, just nice, nice and blue. Other times, um, looking at depth, you know, there, there's clear and obvious uh, compaction and, you know, soil horizon differences uh, in their in their samples. Well, I, yeah, go ahead. Just go ahead, add Marie. like one one last thing here too on, on no-till in specific is that um, I heard a grower once, this was probably in like 2017, we were out in the field and I don't remember if this was an original quote from him or somebody else, but he said, no till, no cover, no good. And so in like, that's a, a important part of the context. Like it sounds like, and Rick, I haven't heard a ton. I don't you know about your operation, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of cover cropping and the, there's like living roots many months of the year. And mm -hmm. that in combination with no till is what makes a system really hum. Right. If you like in the plains where we have no till for a real, like, you know, no-till for many, many years, but there's not living roots and there's a lot of compaction and like there's not, you know, your, the living roots really min minimize that compaction and manage erosion. Mm -hmm. And like, that's how you got down that track. So just sure. like, just looking at tillage as an isolated practice is not like 
there has there has to be more context beyond that to really understand like if it's beneficial if what else we can do to really get the system working right yeah. yeah that really hits the nail on the head because i will say rick some of these folks we've talked to who have seen evidence of compaction in the results they're most often not deeply invested in a cover crop program like you and probably not getting that natural tillage, if you will, bio tillage, getting those roots, helping establish right. those channels and, and form those microbial habitats. So it's all the, it's the tools in the toolkit and how they fit together, but it, it makes our lives interesting when it comes to, it, it's actually one of the really enjoyable aspects is being able to have a conversation and start to tie in some of these practices to the results that we see in, in the, yeah. you know, in the biology. Yeah. I love this. I, I just, this, this makes me feel good because it, it, it just validates that, that, I, that what we're doing is, is correct. So I, I really love this. Uh, Ruth Knight, Ruth, how you doing this evening? Thanks for joining us. Um, this question is about the database for microbes. Is it possible for a microbe to express different functionality depending on variable factors? In other, in other ways, or in other words, how predictable or stable is microbe functionality? Also, recognizing that a certain number of microbes may be complex, such as viruses within fungi or bacteria. That's, that, that's, I, my audience is extremely well educated. So here you go. Wow, that, that is a, that's a great question. I, I know we're kind of up at time, so I, I don't want to go on too long. But uh, first, one thing I should mention is well, we there's don't... there's no time restriction. There's no okay. time restriction. Thanks, Rick. Uh, one thing I should mention is we don't look at viruses. Viruses are, are very challenging to measure, and um, that's there's they, they tend to outnumber other microorganisms pretty significantly. So we don't necessarily look at that side. But when it comes to functionality, it's interesting to think about. When, when we're framing what our results show here, we, we often explain it as functional potential. There are a lot of factors that influence whether microbes are really going to be performing certain functions. And that's one of the reasons why some of the other data you can and, and other context specific information is is key, because depending on environmental factors, microbes you know, may look great on paper, but may have unfavorable conditions as far as physical, you know, physical soil structure, irrigation, rainfall, you know, temperature. Um, what's what's good news is that uh, w the way that we we look at DNA, first of all, for identifying microbes and tying them to functionality, we use the most robust biomarkers that are well agreed upon for identification. And then with the the functionality side, what we're doing, that's where the machine learning comes in and is able to match microbes with reference genomes that are are uh, established in the scientific literature. And, and a lot of that research that goes into those to, to knowing what functions microbes perform does involve validating the, the essentially how stable those functions are. So if a microbe, maybe a species only, you know, a species has a gene function, uh, but it's really only prevalent in maybe 30 or 30% 30 of those microbes, we can see that based on what available full genomic data is available. And then if there's a microbe that you know, it possesses if 98% of the sequence of the full genomes we have in our database show it performs that function, if it's a, you know, a decomposer or a phosphorus solubilizer, the AI is able to, to, to learn and read that and see that, you know, it's much more likely this micro will be performing that function. So I will say there's, you know, it's not perfectly predictable because microbes are complex. Microbiomes are, are inherently complex. There's factors that, like one thing we see, there's like, there's horizontal gene transfer, lateral gene transfer going on. Unlike us humans and, and you know, larger animals, microbes, their DNA can actually be 
it, instead of having to reproduce, their DNA can be transmitted between organisms. Um, so there's there's a lot going on down there. And that's one thing that's really interesting with biological products, biostimulants, we may not necessarily see that microbe um, show up in a sample after a few weeks go by, but sometimes we still see legacy effects as far as the microbiome. And one of our uh, hypotheses is that that lateral gene transfer plays a role. So I don't, I don't want to jump into any tangents, but that's kind of the, the, I guess, simpler answer as far as how we match functionality and how predictable it is. And there are other factors as well, you know, ex levels of microbial expression may hinge on factors like quorum sensing, you know, microbial ecology. And that's where the, the functions I mentioned, where we look at microbes that get along and don't get along, that's also able to kind of help hint at, at those overall, that overall community behavior. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's 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 a difficult, difficult process to, to, to make sense of it, but uh, the combination of having database and functional information makes us very confident that those, those numbers match up with what those microbes are, are capable of doing in the soil. Yeah, that's a great, great question, Ruth. Thank you. Uh, Ludmila's on tonight. Ludmila, how you doing? She, she's been on before. She had, did a great podcast. Um, I'm a, let's, let's, uh, now that you've ran a number of these samples for which Regen Ag Lab also ran PLFA tests, you are correct. Can you comment on the correlation between the two tests? Do you know that answer, uh, Gus, because I do? We actually, I'm curious. I don't think I've seen your PLFA test. So if you if you have looked at those correlations, I'd I'd be fascinated. I, I I can give a general answer, which is you know, and we get this question all the time because a lot of folks are familiar with PLFA. Now we do not have a cut and dry correlation between our our metrics. Generally, we 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 both have a fungi to bacteria ratio. That's actually on on Rick's reports and and anyone who sends in a B crop test, we have a fungi to bacteria ratio, much like PLFA. But ours, when we're looking at, we're looking at the DNA versus the phospholipid fatty acids. So it's total apples to oranges when it just comes to analytical technique. Um, with PLFA, there's a fairly, generally there could be anywhere from 20 to 40% of undifferentiated fatty acid, phospholipid fatty acids. Um, whereas with the DNA, if we're not able to, to identify a microbe down to species level, we can oftentimes lump it into a, to a genus if it's taxonomically similar enough. Um, the fungi to bacteria ratio we have tends to skew more bacterially dominant. You may have noticed that, Rick. So we don't we don't often have soils that achieve a perfect one to one fungi to bacteria ratio. That's simply because the biomarkers that we use to compare the DNA biomarkers we use to compare bacteria and fungi do tend to be more prevalent in terms of the bacterial population, just based on how many more cells bacteria tend to possess. Um, but the same concept we do like to see uh, over time as a grower is taking samples to monitor their soil health, we like to see a, a fungi to bacteria ratio at least shift more towards the fungal side. So same concept in interpretation. It's just apples to oranges, and I wouldn't generalize between those ratios. And, you know, one one way uh, Lance Gunderson at Regen Ag Labs has described our, our bee crop test is it's kind of like the PLFA on steroids, meaning the PLF, which I, I am a big believer in the PLFA and have used it going back um, years. But uh, it, it lumps microbes into what we call functional groups with gram negative, gram positive, looking at you know different types, mycorrhizae and saprotrophs. With bee crop, we're going much deeper into into those functional groups, not just the the you know taxonomy or these these you know gram positive gram negative groups, but nitrogen nitrogen releasers, phosphorus solubilizers, carbon fixers, fungicide agents. So we're really trying using leveraging the DNA to look more at agronomic functional groups rather than 
um, strictly what the the phospholipid fatty acids can tell us. And there's probably there. I'm certainly I believe there are correlations between the two tests, um, but we haven't necessarily looked at a large enough data set to know if there's any cut and dry patterns from the small sets of samples I've looked at. All I've noticed is the that the difference in the bacterial to fungi ratio tends to skew bacterial dominant in the the B crop. Yeah, and you know everybody's different. I mean, when I had these te when I had this notion to do this, I wasn't going to leave anything. I mean, we did everything. We did it all. Uh, so I mean, this was a very expensive test when you take everything we did and add it together. Um, but look at the data we got from this and. And the other thing that I really wanted to find out was, and I don't know, uh, Gus and Marie, I don't know if you guys um, uh, like identified the biology that was at the zero to one and then compared it to the biology that was identified in the, in the one to two and so on and so on. I wanted to see if not only did we A, have compaction and B, are we stratifying our nutrients, but are we stratifying our biology at the same time? See, that's where I really wanted to go with this. So did you guys do a biological essay on the one inch increment and make those comparisons? We certainly can. Among the tools in our portal, we have one that allows you to compare species. Now we often will look at, you know, major plant growth promoters, your, you know, your functional microbes like trichoderma bacillus, um, rather than necessarily looking at the entire population. We also have a tool on our, our on our online portal that lets you look at number of, of species and how many are in common between samples. So that's where I'll, I'll sometimes looking at samples that are taken close by, we see a lot of species in common. Whereas if a grower has fields 20 miles apart, there's, there's a lot of difference. So those same sort of tools can be applied here um, to, to look at certain specific microbial species and how much that changed. Um, yeah. I really liked it, you know, Rick, when it comes to these functions, there's not often just one or two microbes that are driving these, these nutrient cycles. There's, you know, there's just, there's so many there and there's a lot of complexity going on. So there's, their, their populations aren't even typically, you know, going to be super consistent as time goes on. So looking at these functional groups and how that, that shakes up from, from inch to inch really tells me a lot more, you know, even though I've, you know, people sometimes will throw a microbe name at me. And sometimes I, I know it, I I'm at least somewhat familiar with it. A lot of times I'm not. And I have to remind myself, no one in, in the history of mankind can know what, what all the different millions of microbes do. So that's the benefit of the functional groups. Um, we certainly can in the tools in our portal, which if we have time could even could jump on now, we can compare the zero to one inch, one to two inch, two to three inch and see maybe if certain mycorrhizal fungi vary, you know, at, at depth uh, and, yeah. and factors like that. So, so we certainly can do that. It's just the functional groups are often our way of really digging into those, those agronomic factors that, you know, that are going to relate to, to management practice. Because, well, I mean, I, I, I make, I, I make some assumptions, but I also, I'm trying to use logic here when I, when I, when I make these assumptions, but, you know, I got to think that, that I, I, microbes are just like us humans. I mean, there's, we, there's certain places we like to go and there's certain places we don't like to go. And I'm assuming the microbes will do the same thing. So, you know, maybe you get time, you can run that test cross crossways for me and see what's in the, in each of those levels. And, and folks, just so everyone knows, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to start putting some of this stuff in my presentation now, because I, this is the future. 
and then you take this information and then you take the groups like what Ludmila's got with her group of, 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 of biological warriors out there, farming warriors, and now you create uh, these recipes to, 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 that are prescribed to whatever situation you have going on in your context. And that's where this is all going to be going one day, Gus and, and Marie. And, and, and you guys are doing it there at the lab. But I, I, I still think in one day we're going to have something in our hand and, and we're just going to be able to slip in the slide and it's out's going to come the results, you know. But that, that's me. Um, so let, let, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Mark is wanting, is wanting to give us a little more background on this. Um, some more background on question. Biodynamic versus no-till organic. I'm doing just food-grade edible crops. Dry beans, popcorn, sunflowers, and flowers have not, success, have not been successful with no-till crimp cereal rye on food crops and have went to biodynamic covers and tillage. Yeah, I get it. I get it, uh, Mark. You're you're no, you're way north of us. Your your weather's not near as, as nice as ours. Your season's shorter. Um, I understand all that. Um, and I don't I didn't I don't mean to to put this. I'm not wanting to shove what we're doing in your face. That's not what I'm about. I'm just I'm just excited because all the efforts that we've done are paying off. And and this this chart excites me that that they've got. Uh, that they show what our farm's doing. So um, I know, again, it goes to context and you're exactly right. So hopefully, Mark, one day uh, we can get some no-till figured out and, and be just as successful. Um, Michael, I don't, I, don't, I don't have your last name. I'm sorry. I don't know why I don't get everyone's last name. Context is so important. Soil types, soil moisture levels, tillage types, covers, even annual climate factors, etc., create almost infinite variables. Yep, that's exactly right. Folks, folks at Bionutrient Food Association testing for, for food nutrient density are discovering this also. You bet. I, I totally I, I get that. You know, and, and when when we start when we start talking about like comparing parts of the country, you you can't you can't look at Arizona soil and Iowa soil, and it, it's not going to be the same. So we have to put these things into context. Um, Gus, what else do you have? You got another slide here for us? We do. We have a few more slides, and you know, I, I don't. We don't have all the information on your samples here, and this was actually only your wheat samples. I think you also had some sorghum, if I recall correctly. But this next slide, this is looking actually. This this touches a little bit on your point, Rick, of talking about how. Not only are you know nutrients potentially um, you know being being uh, compacted into layers, but microbes. Looking at the population, these are these three metrics look at the entire microbiome. So rather than sorting them, categorizing them as aerobic, anaerobic, and looking at you know nitrogen fixers or phosphorus solubilizers, here we look, we have a metric called soil quality, which is our really our best shot at an overall rating on the, on the biological status biodiversity, which is based on the number of species that are present. So biodiversity, we're really just basing it on how many microbes are there, how, how abundant they are, um, and how taxonomically diverse or different they are. And then the more uniqueness and the more microbes we have, the higher that rating is. 
Um, but biodiversity doesn't entirely tell the whole story because that's telling us who's there and how many there are. It's not telling us a lot about their functions. The resilience indicator on the right, the, the farthest column to the right, that looks at microbes that that's that's lumping them in and looking at essentially their ability, the microbiome's ability to deal with stressors and disturbance, to bounce back from uh, tillage or drought or or even um, you know unfavorable temperature swings. Um, so resilience is looking kind of at the whole community and how redundant functions are and how effectively we'd expect microbes to respond to stressors, uh, both biotic and abiotic. And you know if there was what you might want to say, uh, sequestration or compartmentalization, or however you want to describe it, compaction influencing the microbes and causing the population to defer. Well, we often will see, you know, biodiversity, once you get below six inches that and below the rhizosphere, we, I, I have noticed just anecdotally, it tends to go down. That's not surprising in a lot of row crops because the roots only reach down to about six inches. And below that, it's not dead, but there's a lot less microbes there because they're not getting the root exudates so much, you know, and they're, you know, oftentimes not as not as exposed to those disturbances. But your biodiversity, which we, we tend to see biodiversity correlate with healthy soils in general, as, as you might expect, it stayed in the in the high to very high range throughout, even going down to the five to six inch and even the six to 12 inch. Um, the resilience also stayed high going going low into the soil profile. There might, I think, Rick, there is a little bit of uh deviation here. When you look at resilience, I think we talked about this, but zero to one inch, that's probably where there's going to be some disturbance from, you know, traffic, just from inevitable traffic and harvesting and, and planting. Um, a no-till drill runs, a no-till drill run, the, the blade is running in that zero to one inch zone. So yeah, and there's going to be more exposure just to the elements, to air and rain yes. and whatnot. So resilience here is a little lower, but it actually increases from low all the way to, to very high going down to the, the deeper depth. So that's where there might be a little bit of difference, but it's really what we'd expect to see again, because like you said, that top inch is getting some disturbance, whereas down low, this is really what we want to see throughout the, the soil profile is a lot of blue in these, these overall categories. Um, and then lastly, one other thing that we had touched on, now this is another specific section looking at plant growth promoters or microbes that um, promote uh, plant uh, tolerance to stressors. So we we see a bunch of phytohormones here. We're not measuring phytohormones in the soil. We're measuring the levels of these symbiotic microbes that that we know can produce these phytohormones and other metabolites and compounds that help crops deal with various forms of stress. Um, oxen, cytokinin, gibberellin are kind of your growth hormones. But here we do see a little bit of a higher, higher, more blue in the in the upper zones. And really here the green boxes kind of highlight it. That's also not necessarily surprising. That's probably going to be where there's a little bit more of those those roots. Um, but some of these, you know, do like heavy metal resistance is a category we look at that that measures the microbes that can help mitigate phytotoxicity, mitigate heavy metal buildup in the soil. That stays pretty strong going down. But this was one area where you know the, the we do see a little bit higher levels closer uh, to the top, but a fair bit of variability um, throughout. Hmm. And that yeah, was as far as far as your samples go, Rick. There's a lot more details to dive into, and I'd be more than happy to take a look at some of the some of those microbial species and groups and see if we do see any differences um, between between the the depths. But this slide just kind of touches on all the different metrics. These are all the, the we really break down our reports into three main sections, and this this encompasses all the the different metrics we look at. Just just to kind of put it all in, into to one slide. Yeah, I, this is powerful stuff, folks. Um, 
And again, if you've got any questions, now's the time. We've got we've got Marie and Gus here. So, and if anybody wants to raise their hand, Rachel can can um, unmute you. Um, let's see, what do you got? What do you got there? More HMR is hu is huge. Our food supply is toxic from heavy metals. Yeah, yeah. I I you know to Marie, how would you? Um, you know, you and I are sitting down at the table and we're going through these tests. Tell me, tell me what, what your interpretation is of, of, our, of your data here for, for our farm. Oh, well, just this one field. I don't know if Maurice, maybe. Yeah, I'm still here. Sorry. I've uh, got a couple more hours driving tonight, so I'm back on the road. No, that's um, okay. But um, I mean, yeah, it's just, I think Gus really covered it all. You, we've, you know, looked at all the things that are, that are going on and it, it, it's cool when the data lines up with what you see in the field, right? It's just like, I forget what guest had the question, but just like, how are these things validated and how often do they make sense? And, um, yeah. this is just a really great example of where that happens, right? You have, uh, and that, and that's always really exciting, right? And I would say that that happens like 80 to 90% in our work where it's like you see these indexes and then you ask the grower what the context is and then you're like, oh, that makes sense. That oh. makes total sense. You've either like today, for example, one of the growers that we were working with had pretty poor nutrient cycling uh, in terms of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but they've been using like really heavy uncomposted hog manure for like 30 years. And so when you hear that, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Like you've got, they had really high or like uh, nutrient consumption because the microbes were just trying to process all the excess nutrients that were there. Um, and, you know, their overall nutrient pathways were low because they had like, they just had an excess of nutrients and not not the biology hadn't been tended to to really process it and like make it available to the plant so that those are some of the really neat examples where there's something that we can do to move the needle by identifying the root cause issue and yeah. and and then we see you know fields like this where it's like oh you're you know been doing no-till and cover crops and diversity and all this stuff and then like it's like oh that makes sense <laughs> so yeah. it's always cool when it you know the the, yeah. the data really shows us and proves what's going on in the field yeah and not only that marie but what the farmer expectation is you know he he's assuming that what he's doing is correct i mean i'm trying to do my best out here we're trying to do no-till we're trying to do cover you know and then this is like oh wow well, you know like wow yes it's thank you it's working right uh, claudia is saying thank you marie and gus this is going to be an awesome tool for farms especially regenerative farming wow yeah um Ed's got a good question here. Rick talks a lot about epigenetics. How can biomakers help with that? That's a great question, Ed. Um, do you know what he's talking about, Gus? Um, I, I, I drive epigenetics home a lot. Do you know what he's talking about? Oh, sorry, just had to unmute myself. Yeah, I'm familiar. With, well, I'm certainly no expert in epigenetics, but have that's something I, I think a lot about because when it comes to epigenetics, 
you talk about how it's it's really focused on how the environment can influence uh, gene expression. Yes. And this gets brought up by some of our clients who, who are on the microbiology side or and uh, with epigenetics, you know, what we're looking at, we're looking at biomarkers that we use to then model and, and identify microbial species to tie them to a function based on full genomic data um, and our, our reference database. But epigenetics is interesting because the genes themselves don't inherently change. That's the expression. Now, what's I think when it comes to epigenetics, because we're looking at the DNA and it doesn't change typically with epigenetics, that's where we may be able to see uh, dissonance in, in terms of when we don't, you know, Marie mentioned, we do see things line up most, you know, like 80% of the time with what we see on a soil biology report versus what we see in terms of yield and, and productivity. But uh, when we do see factors where we might profile that, you know, we're seeing strong phosphorus solubilization or, or strong, you know, nit strong nitrogen release, strong nitrogen fixation, um, but maybe not seeing the outcomes or as far as uh, fertilizer use efficiency um, or, or maybe not seeing as much ROI as, as far as uh, input costs with, uh, with biological products. That's where epigenetics is just one of many factors we have to think about. But I think that there's, there's some degree because we're able to see based on the biomarkers what we expect the microbes to be doing in the soil um, that we can maybe kind of take the first stab at seeing where how environmental influences some of that metadata like management practices and, and region and environment can uh, cause dissonance. But that's a tough question. I, that's that's one of the areas certainly on the horizon for, for us at Biomakers and our data science team is tackling epigenetics. I'll tell you what I'm going to do there, Ed. And you're more than welcome to give me your ideas on what to do as well. Next spring, when we have actively growing um, our our actively growing maslin, which we've created a, a cereal rye, wheat, and a barley combination. Um, I think what we'll do, Ed, is I'll take we'll do the the shake the 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 the, the soil from the roots of those newly grown plants and have biomakers run the biology right there at that at that uh, rhizosphere. So. That will be the first way I'll tackle that. If you've got another idea, you let me know. Um, Ruth Knight is back. Uh, Ruth's got a, a question. This is a great question. I'm glad you asked it, Ruth, because I was going to. Um, let's see. I just, here we go. Uh, I am an independent agronomist. How can I access training in interpreting and using the analysis to assist her growers? Very good question. And I will give a shout out there to a program that we've developed. It's available on our website called the Bee Crop Advisor Program. It's it's completely free, um, just a short about two hour course on interpreting using our analysis and, and understanding how to support growers with it. And it also includes some perks for those who uh, haven't done any, who haven't pulled any bee crop tests previously. There's um, a, a, a deal for crop consultants to get a first uh, package of it gets 20 or 25 tests at a discount. Um, and it also is a is a network of, of crop consultants where we meet uh, uh, twice a month to just go over experiences, have a lot of the conversations about what we're seeing in our results and, and what we're seeing in the field. So um, more than I just dropped the, uh, oh, it looks like I, I sent the the uh, link, but our Jamie um, from our marketing team sent it as well. So please take a look at that link in the, the chat to, uh, thanks, to have some- thanks, well, but but Gus, can can you do you guys have a 
uh, do you guys have a, I mean, school is not the right word here, but do you guys have a, a class or something that, that, you know, like, like the Haney test, for example, I mean, that thing's hard to, to comprehend. You need help going through it. Do you guys do this? Can you do the same thing to teach Ruth so then she can go out and and quickly tell her 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 troops, uh, you know, what's happening on these tests? Yeah. So that's what the B crop advisor program includes is that the two hour course does focus heavily on interpreting our tests, knowing how to understanding okay. how to use them. So, okay. yeah, we, we try not to go too deep into the microbiology nuances because we want it to be you know accessible and 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 uh you know useful for someone who maybe doesn't have a deep background in soil biology but it's really intended for uh folks of all all backgrounds in soil health and soil biology um and that two-hour course is a great resource to just get an idea of where to start with interpreting tests um jamie also mentioned we have an upcoming webinar and we have quite a few webinars on our uh, website that do go into reviewing data reviewing results and understanding some of the interpretation and, and implications. So um, yeah, definitely uh, recommend those tools on our website. We also have a B-Crop guide, which we we tend to provide to folks who are looking to get just a reference guide. It's kind of like Rick uh, Rick Haney's Regen uh, you know, guide as far as interpreting uh, the Haney test, similar sort of document going through the definitions of the parameters, what's good, what's bad. Um, so we have a, a suite of resources, but we know that's one of the big challenges with soil health. There's so much complexity in biology and ecology. So we're, we're trying to, it's a big part of our role and my role at Biomakers really is the educational piece of ensuring that this data gets put into practice. Um, the, the, it's, a, it's a big learning curve, but we're really happy to see so many folks who are, are wanting to take that leap and, and really dive in. Oh yeah, this is big. And you know what we need to do? We'll do another, we'll do another podcast with these folks and we're just gonna have a podcast about going through the sampling procedure, I mean, you gotta, you gotta collect your samples properly out in the field. And then we'll just, Gus will just go all the way. The sample shows up at your lab, what do you do? How do you read the test? I mean, we'll just do a whole, a whole podcast on that and that'll help educate the, the listeners out there. That would be great. One thing, I've had one of your, your uh, reports open in the background, you know, and we have about 30, roughly 36 parameters throughout the whole report. So there's a lot more that we didn't even have time to get into today. But that would, I would be really excited for that, Rick, just to have the chance to go through the sampling procedure. Oh. And it, it really is pretty similar to a conventional standard chemical fertility oh. test. But I'd be really excited to go through with your audience uh, point by point a report from top to bottom, to hit on the areas for potential improvement, what looks good, what looks bad, what's actionable, um, and kind of just give a, you know, I'd love to have a back and forth conversation too of just anyone who has any curiosities on um, what, you know, what, what, uh, jumps out in a sample report. Right, right. Uh, Michael, again, I apologize, I, I can't see your last name. Since the vast majority of crop soils, even organic, are slash were impacted by chlorides, pesticides, herbicides that are long lived, do you see evidence that these residuals might alter these? That, this is great. These the residuals might alter these findings from a normal non-impacted soil. Is there any consistency with a particular chemical? Not sure I'm asking. Oh yeah, you are. You're asking that exactly correctly. That's a great question. Yeah, that's, I, I could go on about that one for a while, but uh, it's, it, I forget someone else earlier in the chat meant talked about, brought up the complexity and the context. And that's one of the tough the tough factors is that certain soils are just more receptive to holding on to chlorides or holding on to 
uh, uh, you know, compounds that are that 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 glyphosate and other other um, herbicides break down into. Whereas some soils are pretty good at at flushing that out. And and then there's also the fact that in region by region, the the chemicals, the crop protection products that are going down are very different. So it's hard for us to draw to see any any major trends across agricultural soils. But the nice thing is our our database, you know, we're rating these samples according to these functional groups. Um, the rating system is based on our global database. And even for corn, soy, you know, a lot of our samples come out of the corn belt in the Midwest, just because that's the big corn, soy growing regions. But because we have such wide variety, including soils from Europe and Australia and Africa for certain crop types, um, when we see, you know, sometimes we do see things uh, that, that stand out. And then we get to talking to the client, the grower, the, the agronomist, and then things that suddenly it, it clicks as far as residuals, some of these um, impacts of things like chlorides. We one of the really exciting ones, and this is also something that's been on my mind a lot, is with glyphosate. And and you know that's there's a lot of talk about glyphosate and also the the product that it uh, breaks down into and the microbes' role in that. And I mean we've seen enough tests to know glyphosate isn't necessarily fumigating or sterilizing the soil, but it does. There's enough research now to show it has some effects on the microbes and whether that's good or bad for all microbes, the jury's still kind of out. But uh, we do know that there's some, there's some, there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence. And also, you know, glyphosate was developed to be an antimicrobial. So it's going to have some negative effects. But um, we, if it was sterilizing the soil, you know, like some fumigants are intended to, we, we know that by now. Um, but one anecdotal uh, thing that I, I hear come up time and time again, and I think John Kempf and I think a few of his podcast episodes has hit on this is manganese deficiency uh, associated with heavy glyphosate application year over year. We just had a grower. Um, I won't shout him out because our, our data is fully anonymous up until a client decides to publish it or share it. But um, he had the manganese pathway. We, that's one of the micronutrients we look at, the, the microbes that are able to unlock manganese and cycle it. They were super low across a large set of samples. And he said, well, we struggle a lot with manganese and I see it more of a struggle in, with growers who've been using glyphosate heavily for a long time and not so much with those who maybe maybe haven't had to use it quite as much over the years. And I know there's some chemical explanations to that as far as the, the uh, availability of manganese. And I, I'm actually, I'm not an expert on soil chemistry or the, the chemical physical side, but um, the idea the, with glyphosate, and I also, we don't need to go too deep into the science of it, but those sort of anecdotal instances, I'm hoping that as time goes by and we get some more data behind it, we're able to start to understand, like we kind of talked about early on in, in the, I think the direction that the soil biology testing is going is with predictive analytics and being able to prescribe and see some of these effects. So as we get more, you know, there's not a lot of folks super excited to test the effects of certain herbicides and pesticides and such, but I'm hopeful that we can start to see some of these factors shake out that we, we know we see it anecdotally, like with the manganese and glyphosate, but undoubtedly other factors as well. And I will also just add to that, uh, with fungicides and fumigants, you know, they're really not, uh, oftentimes fungicides are not very selective. You know, we're, we know that they're going to kill some of the good fungi. They may bounce back, but year over year, that may have some detrimental effects. We have actually, I mentioned our quality control process earlier. So if we don't get enough uh, microbial DNA, we have to rerun the sample until we do get enough for it to be valid and, and meet our standards. We've had quite a few samples, especially from golf courses, which get, uh, you know, fumigation or, or fungicides applied on a weekly or biweekly basis. We've had a lot of samples that were taken right after fumigation or right after fungicide fail, especially in the fungal 
uh, side of not not obtaining enough DNA. So there's a lot to unpack there, uh, Michael, with that question. And we certainly do see impacts. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of evidence that the microbes do play important roles in, in remediating those long-term impacts, but still a lot to, to tease out in the data as far as, um, as far as, you know, cut and dry negative impacts and, and long-term effects of some of those residuals. Yeah, that's great. Great question. Great answer. Um, uh, any season to maybe we can get Marie to, to I know you're driving Marie and I I appreciate that and that's what I like about this being live I want I don't I want this to be fluid and and what's going on in your life um, Paul Thomas Paul's on almost every week how you doing guys uh, any season is there any season to pull the sample I get you know one season spring summer fall uh, and what's the what's the cost to run some of these tests. Yeah, so we get this question a lot. Uh, the best time to pull, I always say, is like operationally contextual. <laughs> so uh, what are you using the test for? What decisions do you want to make using the test? Um, it, knowing that it takes a couple weeks to get the results and you want time to make a decision with it, most growers are pulling the sample immediately post-harvest or early in the springtime. And that's when you're out pulling your fertility sample and you can do it at the same time. The sampling protocol is near this like it's the same it's just that you need to send it to the lab sooner because you're working with living dna um but the protocol is the same composite sampling you know top two to six inches with a soil probe um so yeah i, I would say that the best time to take samples is when it makes the most sense and what depending on what you want to use the results for and right. and then second piece being to do it at the same time every year so if you start pulling samples in the fall, then just do it every fall. So you're comparing it to the same general time of the year, post-harvest um, or in the springtime. And then um, the cost generally breaks down to around $2 an acre, which I think is pretty similar to grid sampling and crop production. Um, so it's, it's 200 bucks a test roughly, and you're doing less samples. So we, we sample on a grid or on a zone basis rather than a grid basis like you might for fertility analysis um so yeah that's the the cost breaks down to roughly two two to three bucks an acre so marie would you also recommend that that you drop a pen and geospatially mark where you're pulling this sample from every year then yeah i mean you're pulling a composite sample so you're you know pulling cores from across an entire management zone so it could be a hundred acre field so, you know, the geo reference is just true. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And that, you know, what I'm glad you brought that up. And, and, and I, I know I said we don't have a time limit, but we do have to be respectful of time. We're getting close to two hours or no, what are we about an, an hour and 40 minutes? Um, what, you know, I like to do. I like to do these tests in conjunction with the Haney test. So mm -hmm. uh, is that is that kind of a typical way to do this? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of our standard offerings. We call it a beet crop plus test. Okay. Um, we're partnered with Region Ag Labs who runs the Haney test. And now they actually are running beet crop tests as well in our lab. Um, so we love Lance and all those folks over at Region. Um, the B crop plus test, when you're looking at the biology plus the chemistry is my favorite way to look at things because you've got no. a 
you know, your potentially available nutrients based on a water extraction, which mimics the soil biology. So that's your chemistry side of things. And then you've got the biology that's actually there to leverage it and to make those things actually available. Um, I, I think that's the future of soil testing is looking at both all the time yeah. and using that to inform our decisions. And, and I'll just add, I don't know, it's just coming up for me that like, we, we work with growers on every side of the spectrum. And this, this technology and this way of looking at things is highly relevant for regenerative growers, for conventional growers, for yeah. everyone in between. And understanding the soil biology and understanding how to make decisions based on that moving forward is the future of agriculture. Yeah. You're exactly right. And it's it's nut farmers, it's tree farmers, it's vegetable growers, it's everybody. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Any last questions, folks, because I'm, I'm headed to the finish line here. Um, Marie, you first, ladies first, take us home here. Um, what didn't we touch on? You know, give us your final thoughts. Um, and we're going to have you guys back sometime soon. But um, uh, take us home here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I kind of just hit that nail right. And what I always really try to get across is that the the looking at the chemistry and the biology together is the next step change in agriculture. It's yeah. it's it's coming back to the what I've always said is like it's it's coming. It's using age old wisdom about the natural systems and how they work and how they grow giant trees in the forest and new age technology. So age old wisdom and new age technology to come together to create the next step change in food production and how we do things. And so that that's what I get really excited about is like this intersection of technology and with like, you know, nature and, and science and uh, seeing all those things come together. And like, that's, that's how we're going to feed the world for generations to come. And, yeah. and there's the, we've got a, you know, we're at a tipping point, I think of like it having to really shift that direction. And that's why, you know, this has to meet everybody where they're at. And yeah. um, that's what I, that's what we're doing at Biomaker. So it's really exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm going to get to you in a second, guess, but um, yeah, thank you, Marie. That That's a great way to wrap it up. Um, and Michael's telling me his last name. It's Mike Adsit. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate that. Is the, hey, Gus, is the side by side with Malik 3 useful compared to the Haney? What's your opinion on that? It, it certainly can be. You know, we have uh, folks who have their personal preferences as far as chemical fertility tests, but both Regen Ag Lab and I believe both of our other other two partnership labs, uh, Waters and, and Waypoint Analytical, both offer the, the Malik. And similar, we like the Haney because it does have that water extractable organic nitrogen and, and, and also looks at phosphorus and carbon through a, a little bit of a deeper lens. But you can certainly use your standard Malik 3 as uh, in conjunction and um, side by side as, as Marie was describing. Look, you know, the, on a B crop test, you have what microbe what microbes are present to mobilize those nutrients. And then on the Malik, you're looking more so at what's available or what's, you know, what's there um, for the crop to work with. So, yeah, they can certainly be used in tandem as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, well, Gus, you've gone. Oh, my gosh, you've gone through a lot of stuff here tonight. Take us. What we forget, um, wrap this up for us, and and we're gonna we're gonna head for home here. 
Well, one thing I want to mention, Rick, is, and this gets back to kind of that context-specific challenge in, in regenerative ag, and also what Marie was mentioning of meeting people where they're at. And it's yep. it's such a challenge because of the fact that there are no silver bullets. One of the reasons that you know a lot of that uh, conventional ag you know, took the shape it took is because it's very easy to go out and just try to, you know, kill and control and, you know, take a problem and match it with a solution and just kind of think inside the box that way. But with yeah. regenerative ag, suddenly the box is open and you have all, you're thinking from a systems approach, everything's interconnected. And um, you have to, when you, you try one thing, you have to think about, you know, not just the direct thing you're trying to find a solution for, but also the indirect effects and the other implications. So it's not an, it's a challenge. And I think Rick, folks like you who are on the pioneer inside of regenerative ag who have platforms like this to share your knowledge and experience. To me, that's hand in hand with the data and the information that folks at like Biomakers Regen Ag Lab provide. Folks like you who are, are out there and, and experimenting and pioneering regenerative practices that work and especially on large scale row crops, to me, that's uh, it's super important just to just to ensuring that we that folks do have a have have the tools in the toolbox. You have to start somewhere, but it's daunting when there's no one in your region or, or you know you're you're trying to you know it's it's risky as growers and there's kind of a vicious cycle to a lot of conventional agronomy agronomy when it you know when it comes to even things like crop insurance, but also just inputs and and kind of staying on that that route. Yeah. Turning that route around, it takes tremendous uh, confidence, a tremendous effort to learn. And I just, I, I just wanted to end by by hitting on the the tremendous role that you play. Other folks that we've oh. talked about, like John Kempf and um, Steve Groff, other other pioneers in the regenerative space. It's yeah. tremendous to to have resources like you. And I'll, and I I know we've touched on a lot of topics today, but it's been great conversations and okay. great questions from your audience. So so yeah, oh. appreciate the opportunity and thank you for all the work you do getting the knowledge and expertise out there. Well, thank you. I appreciate the kind words and I have the most educated audience in, in all of podcasts. I, I, I have a great group of folks that, that travel with us every week and they keep me on my toes. I'll tell you that. So uh, thank you to everyone who came on tonight. I, we're getting all kinds of thanks. Happy Thanksgiving. This has been a great a great session, a lot of information, super information. Uh, so, guys, thank you, Marie. Thank. I know you're you're busy. You're you're headed for home. Please be careful uh, getting getting yourself home. Gus, thanks for for coming on with us tonight. This has been great. I've been wanting to do this for a while with you guys because the, you guys, I mean, you guys are like a sleeper out there. Then all of a sudden, you're just going to turn into a giant. So. Uh, this is great stuff. Keep up the good work, guys, and, and thank you much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us on, Rick. Yep. You thank guys you are welcome. Appreciate it. Have a great night. You're welcome, and happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And, um, you know, I got to do what is, what is uh, next week is Thanksgiving. Is that right? Oh, my gosh, it is. Uh, so there will be no podcast next week. We're going to take a, take a week off. So, Everyone have a great Thanksgiving and we'll see you soon. Thanks guys. Bye-bye.